So Revelation chapter 6, and we want to look at verses 9 through 17. And next week is our last gathering for the semester, and we'll be off on the 21st and the 28th for the holidays. And so um, make those particular notes, and then we'll come back on January the 4th uh, with all of our midweek activities resuming that night. But for tonight, we want to look at the rest of chapter 6, and then we want to answer the question that is asked at the end of the chapter, who can stand on the day of the Lord next week as we look at chapter 7. If we gave the passage tonight a title, I would call it As His Story Turns. As His Story Turns. We want to think about how God is telling His story of redemption and particularly about how the end of the story is told. And the end of the story is the day of the Lamb. It's the day when when God reconciles to himself all those who belong to him and pours out his wrath righteously upon those who are apart from him. And the events that surround that dreadful day and the outpouring of God's judgment are recorded in this book. So that one, those who are sinful may know that there will be an accounting of their sin. But more importantly, so that those who are faithful will know that their vindication will happen. God gives this unveiling, this revelation to John that he might give it to the people of God so that they will know that there will not be an unending season where they are never vindicated, but that in fact history will come to its conclusion and God will set all things to right and justice will be accomplished at last. In Revelation chapters 4 and 5, we saw the descriptions of the one who sits upon the throne, the Lord God, the Almighty, and of the Lamb who is between the throne of God and the living creatures. And John tells us that both the one who sits upon the throne and the Lamb, they are worthy to receive power and honor and glory and blessing and majesty and dominion. And he tells us that the one who sits on the throne held in his hand a scroll that was sealed with seven seals. It was written on the inside and on the back. And he tells us that there was a great search that took place as they sought one who was able to open the scroll and to reveal its contents. And that great drama that we see in chapter 5 where there's a grand search of heaven and earth for one who is able to open the scroll and John tells us no one was found worthy to open the scroll is given to us to demonstrate that Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is on another plane from us. That He is one with the Father and the Spirit and that He shares in the divine perfection of the Father that is necessary to be worthy to unlock the scroll and to reveal its contents. And so the Lamb comes forward to open the scroll. And chapter 6, the first eight verses, shows us the breaking of the first four seals. 
And one of the things that we made note of last week is that in the breaking of the first four seals upon the scroll, we still have not gotten to what is actually contained in the scroll. We are simply paring down to that day when we'll be able to see what is actually contained in this scroll that tells us of the plan of God and the Lamb. And so these first four seals are broken, and then we come tonight to the breaking of the fifth and sixth seals. The seventh seal we won't see until chapter 8. And when we get to chapter 8, we'll begin to dive into what is actually contained in the scroll of the one who sits upon the throne. These first matters are on the periphery. They are, they are ancillary. They're on the outside of what is actually contained in this book. Let's read together beginning in chapter 6 and verse 9 through the end of the chapter and then we'll walk through this together. John says in chapter 6 and verse 9 that when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? John begins in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, by recording the breaking of the fifth seal. The breaking of the first four seals on the scroll revealed the ordinary course of human history. History that is wrecked by sin, but being redeemed by the Lamb. The first seal revealed a white horse with its rider who came conquering and to conquer. A reminder to us of the advancement of the kingdom mission of Jesus Christ who promised that his gospel would be preached in all the world and then the end would come. The second seal revealed a red horse with a rider who was permitted to take peace from the earth, demonstrating that warfare and bloodshed accompany life in a fallen world. The third seal revealed a black horse with a rider who carried scales in his hand that would convey market downturn, rising inflation, and food insecurity. The fourth seal revealed a pale horse whose rider's name was Death and Hades followed. Their authority over a fourth of the earth signaled a time when the trouble and tumult of a life in a fallen world would dramatically increase and the world would suffer pointed, widespread destruction. 
The breaking of the fifth seal reveals more of the spiritual side of these earthly realities already revealed. The Word tells us in Ephesians that there is a spiritual battle going on. We often think about the physical battles, the the things that are visible to us, what we see in our world, but there's a correlation on the spiritual side of things to these earthly struggles that we endure. And the breaking of the fifth seal speaks to that. Even as warfare and bloodshed and particular widespread attack on human life is occurring in the course of human history, many of those whose lives are lost belong to God and the Lamb. And of those who belong to God and the Lamb who have died, a great many of them have died on account of their commitment to the truth of the gospel. John tells us that he saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. The altar referred to here is likely the altar of incense that we read about in Exodus 30 and verse 27. Notice that John did not see the bodies of those who had been slain, but only the souls. Here's evidence of one of the great mysteries of our faith. Namely, that there's a period in between our physical death and our physical resurrection in which the body and soul are separated. Let me pause in my notes and say this. We've talked about this before and we will talk about it again because I think it is fundamental to our misunderstanding of the Scripture that so often we have been conditioned to think that what there is in the Christian experience is death and then life eternal immediately and that's the end of the story. But that's not the end of the story and that's not the message that Scripture contains. The message of Scripture is that there is physical death for every man, woman, boy, and girl. That those who are the Christian dead, those who die in the Lord, await a bodily resurrection unto eternal life. And that in that intervening period, from the time of physical death to the time of bodily resurrection, the body is in the ground awaiting the resurrection of the dead, and the soul is consciously present with the Lord. But that there will be reunion of body and soul at the day of the Lord. That's what is depicted, I believe, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when the Apostle Paul tells us as a word of encouragement that those who have died will be caught up in the air forever to be with the Lord. There's going to be this reunion. And that matters. You say, why does that matter? Well, it matters because we so often slip into the idea that what is wrong with us is the material or the physical. And if we could... Like the old gospel song, from a, like a bird from these prison bars, I'll fly. If we could just get shed of this earthly tabernacle, then all of our troubles would go away. But that's not the message of Scripture. The message of Scripture is not that what is wrong with us is the physical or the material. The message of Scripture is that every part of us has been tainted and troubled by our sin the soul, the spirit included. 
What Jesus has come to redeem is the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. And what will be put back together in a glorified and everlasting way in the new heaven and new earth is the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. So here's a reminder to us as we see the souls being described beneath the altar who have been slain, that they await the resurrection of the dead. When John describes these souls that have been slain, he uses the same word that John used in that he used in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12 regarding the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. It's the same word that he uses in Revelation 5 verse 6 and 9 and 12 to describe the appearance of the lamb who is who is standing as though he has been slain. That is, he has a mortal wound, yet he lives. We come quickly to know that these souls beneath the altar belong to the Lord because John tells us why they have been slain. It is for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, he says. Though the word for witness, marturion in the Greek, is the same word from which we derive our word martyr, meaning someone who dies for a particular cause. In the first century, that word did not carry this predominant meaning. Instead, it describes someone who could present evidence in a defense of a cause or person. When John says that those beneath the altar had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, he's referring first to their commitment to the revealed truth of God, both revealed in the scriptures and revealed in the spirit-empowered, spirit-inspired preaching of the gospel, and secondly to their personal confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. John says that he heard the souls beneath the altar crying out with a loud voice. That idea of a loud voice, the cry that they exhibit, that's such a passive way. It's such a weak way almost to describe the intensity of the word for cry here. The word for cry in the Greek is, is an onomatopoetic device that appeals to the shrill shriek and call of the raven. In other words, what John is saying is that as the saints are beneath the altar of God, having been slain for the word of God and for their witness of Jesus Christ, the witness they had borne, there is from their very being a shrill shriek that cuts through the eternal presence of the divine. John tells us, that it was so powerful he could not ignore it. And more importantly, it was not ignored by the Lord God himself. John says that this souls cried out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The souls declare three things about the Lord they have a relationship with. First, they declare that the Lord is sovereign. If you were to look at the Greek, you would note that that there's no word in the Greek for sovereign here. There's only the word for Lord. 
So it begs the question, why translate this as sovereign Lord? Why give two words to translate one Greek word? It's because of the intensity or the nature of the word that's used. Typically in the New Testament for the word Lord, we have the word kyrios, Lord. But here's a different word used. It's the word despotes. It means master or prince, an authoritative figure who exercises complete jurisdiction, someone exercising unrestricted power, absolute dominion, confessing no limitations or restraints. That's why the translators give us two words here to convey the intensity of this lordship, sovereign lord. They're saying that the Lord that is worshipped and adored and trusted and magnified and borne witness to by these souls under the altar is the unrivaled authority, the sovereign God, and that this sovereignty is inherent to his person. Second, the souls beneath the altar declare that the Lord is holy. The word holy means something that is sacred or set apart by or for. It's to say that there's something fundamentally different or distinct about this thing that is holy from everything else around it. That's who God is. He is the other one, the different one, the set apart one. The Lord God is fundamentally other than everything of this world, he is holy. And we know that he is holy because we are not. We can see the distinction between everyone and everything of this fallen world and God himself. Finally, the souls cry out that the Lord is true. You'll remember in our commentary on chapter 3 and verse 7 in the letter to the church at Philadelphia that Jesus spoke of himself as the Holy One, the True One. This concept of the Lord being the True One means that he lives into his person and work perfectly in every way. He always measures up. He is never lacking anything. He is perfectly on point. He is ever and always aligned with righteousness and justice. He is not only the embodiment of truth, not only does he tell the truth, but he is always true, always faithful to the glory of the Father. Having addressed the Lord, the souls beneath the altar offer their petition what they're looking for is vengeance. Have you ever been there? In those moments in your life when you've been wronged and you know it. And what you long for is not simply for forgiveness or reconciliation. Sometimes what you want is blood. You want a pound of flesh. You want to pursue vengeance. And what the souls beneath the altar want is vengeance. They want their personal justification. They want vindication for what they have been through. They want themselves to be set as right and justified in the eyes of God and for their oppressors and murderers to be set at condemnation in his sight. So they cry out, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood 
on those who dwell on the earth. These souls, listen, these souls remember their suffering. It's one of the things that stood out to me as I went through this. I've read the Revelation like many of you time and time before, but this time, this is what stood out to me. Often we think about the end of the book and we think about the glorious promise of chapter 21 that there is coming a day when God will wipe away the tears from our eyes and death and sorrow will be no more for the former things have passed away and all things are being made new. But that day has not come yet. They are fully aware of the pain that they have endured on account of the word of the Lord and their witness for him. They feel the weight of the injustice, that their blood has not been avenged, that they have not been vindicated. The vindication that they desire must come at the expense of those who have accomplished their death, namely those who dwell on the earth. One of the other details that stood out to me in this reading of Revelation 6 is that we're given no more particulars than souls under the altar and those who dwell on the earth. We're not told who these people are except we can learn from the other details that those who are under the altar are the people of God, slain on account of their faith, martyred, we would say, and that those who dwell on the earth are those who have brought about their murder, their execution. And so we would say these are the, uh, the opposition, those who are, who are outside of Christ and outside of his kingdom. But where are they from? And in what time period do they live? And in what part of redemption's story do they take their place? The details are left unspoken. And I think that's significant because if you remember that the first six seals on the scroll only tell us things that are ancillary and periphery. They don't tell us about things that are contained within the scroll itself then what's still being described here are those things that are a part of the ordinary course of human history. Things that are endured by the people of God at every time and in every place. And at every time and in every place in the life of the people of God since the ascension of the Lord Jesus and until His return, there will be Christian people whose death comes about for the very fact that they named the name of Jesus. And in every time and in every place, as Christian people are martyred for their faith, there will be those dwellers of earth who have positioned themselves against God and against his people. The cries of these souls beneath the altar of God do not fall on deaf ears. Instead, they are comforted even as they await their vindication. Comfort comes first in the form of a white robe, symbolic of the righteousness that is given to them by Jesus on account of their faith. And then they're given a message. Rest a little longer. The reason they're told to rest is that their number is incomplete. There are more faithful witnesses who were to be killed the word for killed here carries the weight of destruction or abolition. We wouldn't want to press it this far 
But I think it's right to have in view something like genocide, something like the wiping out or the extinguishing of a whole class of human beings. That idea is tied up in this word. People who are extinguished on account of their faith. So don't miss that. Don't miss that Christian people's suffering is nothing new. Christian people have always been suffering great atrocities since the earliest days of the church. And as John says, they'll continue to do so until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. You have to understand that you are not exempt from suffering on account of the Lord Jesus Christ. And though we enjoy incredible freedom in the United States of America and though it may seem impossible to us that there should ever come a time when religious liberty so decays that we find ourselves pressed into circumstances like so many of our brothers and sisters around the world, that our very lives might be at stake on account of our witness, you have to know the day could come. And you have to know that your life, though precious and worth great value, that your life is not accounted more than anything than that of any other Christian who has ever lived. It could be any of us who would be called to give our lives on account of God and the Lamb. So I want you to think about four, witness, four ways that witnesses depend on Jesus. Four ways that witnesses depend on Jesus. Number one... Witnesses depend on Jesus for his instruction in the truth. Witnesses, th those, who are, those who are able to tell the story of the Lamb, they, they depend on Jesus for his instruction in the truth. It says in this passage that they were slain for the word of God. It's revealed truth that they've learned and it's revealed truth that they have been loyal to. They require, they depend upon Jesus for that instruction. Number two, witnesses depend on Jesus for his imputation of righteousness. His imputation of righteousness. It says that they were given a white robe. And often in the Revelation, that white robe is a symbol of the righteousness of Christ. I believe it is here as well. It's symbolic of the righteousness of Christ that's given to those who belong to him by faith. And so when the souls are crying out for vindication, they're told to be at rest. And as they're being told to be at rest, they're, they're given the comfort of the security and the righteousness of Christ to know that their souls have been secured. Though their bodies were given in sacrifice and though their blood has not been vindicated, their souls are secure in the Lord. Core to our faith is the concept of imputed righteousness, of a righteousness that is given to us, put on us, provided for us. It is not something that we work for. It is not something that we earn. And it is not something that we gain over time. There are other Christian traditions that have an idea of an infused righteousness 
And they think that if they will simply observe the sacraments, the ordinances, we would say, the, the sacraments, that through the sacraments, particularly through the taking of the Lord's Supper or the act of confession, the doing of penance, that they would grow more and more righteousness, that they would gain more and more grace. But brothers and sisters, that is not the clear message of the New Testament. The clear message of the gospel is that righteousness is not earned, it is not infused, it is given, it is imputed, credited to our account. We are covered and cloaked in the righteousness of Christ by faith. Number three, witnesses depend on Jesus for his inclination toward his people's prayers for his inclination toward his people's prayers. You hear the souls beneath the altar crying out. They're offering petition. We need vindication. We need reconciliation. We need to be at rest. And God himself inclines himself to them as he clothes them and then as he comforts them with words that they should rest a little longer. For the day will come when their number will be complete and the day of the Lord is ushered in. Here's the reminder that we depend on God to come to us because on our own we never could come to him. It's what the psalmist describes in Psalm 40 when he says, I love the Lord because he heard my voice and he inclined himself to me and he drew me up out of a miry, boggy pit and he set my feet upon a rock and he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to him, our God, so that many would see and fear the Lord. Number four. Witnesses depend on Jesus for his insistence on the Father's timing. For his insistence on the Father's timing. You and I, we we want to do things on our time. And I think if you were to ask, a great majority of Christian people would say, let's get this show on the road, why not today? Let's have the split of the eastern sky, the blast of a trumpet, let's go up. I'm ready. Are you ready? I hope you're ready. I hope it's signed and sealed and delivered. I hope it's settled in your heart between you and holy God. I hope your whole trust in life and in death is in the Son of God who gave His life for you. But even as you stand ready, even as your soul is secure, Even as you can lay down tonight knowing that, God, if this is the last day of my life, I wake up in your presence. It's all fine. God, if you come tonight, I'm ready. Even as you settle that in your heart, you have to defer to the plan of the Father. Because the Father knows all His people. And the Father knows all His plans. And the Father will accomplish His plan in His perfect time. And where you and I might be insistent on doing this on our time frame, the Son, the Lord Jesus, is insistent upon doing it on the Father's time frame. 
How do I know that? Because it says that the comforting words rest a little longer, comes to the souls under the altar, and the justification of that is that until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. The plan isn't over yet. There's more to be done. They're to be at rest until it's accomplished. The fifth seal tells us about souls beneath the altar martyred on account of their faith. And then in verses 12 through 17, John brings us to the breaking of the sixth seal. Now again, we still are not in the contents of the scroll itself. All of the seals must be broken for us to know what's actually in the book that contains the story of the great day of the Lord and the story of his wrath poured out upon the world. But we're getting closer. And here we have the breaking of the sixth seal. Within the judgment of the seventh seal that we'll read about in chapter 8, are the seven trumpet judgments. And within the seventh trumpet judgment are the seven bowl judgments, such that the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, seven of each, function like lenses on a telescope, each telling the story of judgment and the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan in increasing detail as they draw us closer to the story of the end of days. So think for a moment about, um, about a pirate movie. You've all seen them, right? Yes. Okay, nod your head. You're with me. You remember in the pirate movies that they had a telescope, a looking glass, right? And it telescoped out. It, 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 the, you could open it up and it would show you more and more. And that's the way that these series of judgments work in the Revelation. The, the seals are first and then the trumpets and then the bowls. And when we come to the seventh seal, then we get to zoom in a little more and we see the trumpets. And when we come to the seventh trumpet and it's blasted, it opens up a little more and we see the bowls. And with each successive series of judgments, more and more of the earth is being judged until finally in the seventh bowl, the full unmitigated wrath of God is poured out upon the world. Keep that in mind as we begin to move closer to what's contained in the scroll. My New Testament professor, Dr. Bill Cook, offered a theory that I, I really like. I think this makes a lot of sense. He talks about how there's a break between the sixth seal and the seventh seal between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And he says that what he believes is happening is that in both the, the breaking of the sixth seal and the blasting of the sixth trumpet, what we have is a flash forward in history. We've been moving on in successive sequential chronology. We, we've been taking step by step in perfect order. But we come to the sixth seal and all of a sudden we skip a large gap of time and we go down to the end of human history, to the great day of the Lord. 
And before we come to the breaking of the seventh seal, we have an interlude, chapter 7. And chapter 7 seems to offer consolation to the people of God. As we read about those who are numbered from among the tribes of Israel and about those who are numbered among the multitudes of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Similarly, in chapter 11, we have an interlude between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And chapter 11 offers that same kind of consolation to the people of God as we talk about the measuring of the temple itself. In both of these ways, what we recognize is that the sixth seal and the sixth trumpet compel us to go forward and to consider what is at the end of time, at the great day of the Lord, for a moment. Because at some point we'll be brought back into the ordinary story of history. What's going on in the breaking of this sixth seal? Well, certainly there are prophetic and gospel passages in the background of what John is writing. Certainly Joel chapter 2 verses 28 to 32 is in the background. You remember part of what Joel says there that he says, I will show you wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. That's in the background of what John writes. Maybe even more pointedly, what's in the background is the tradition that Matthew records in Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 to 31, as he describes in the Olivet Discourse that great day of the Lord, when he says, Jesus teaches us immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes of earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth of the heaven to the other. Those passages are in view particularly that one of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 24. It's almost, it's almost identical in places to what John writes about as he looks to describe what he sees. This description of the breaking of the sixth seal should be broken into two parts. The natural phenomena that accompany the great day of the Lord in verses 12 through 14, and the human response to the great day of the Lord in verses 15 to 17. So think first about these natural phenomena. It says in verse 12, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. In describing the natural phenomena, John tells us about things that are fierce, Destructive powers of nature at work 
heightened by the abnormal and perhaps the supernatural. See, I want to tell you at the start of this that that what John's describing is both ordinary and extraordinary. It's ordinary in the sense that it will make use of, the great day of the Lord will be accompanied by terrible acts of God, the sort of things that you and I have come to know as acts of God. We call them tornadoes and hurricanes and floods and earthquakes and mudslides and tsunamis. There will be those sort of naturally occurring fierce acts of nature that will occur on the day of the Lord, that will be a part of what happens. But surely the description of verses 12 through 14 can't simply be attributed to natural phenomena. There's more going on here. I think we're to see that it's both ordinary and extraordinary. It's both the natural and the abnormal the supernatural even. John describes a, a great earthquake. He describes a solar eclipse. That's, that's what's being described when he says the sun becomes black as sackcloth. He describes a lunar eclipse. That's what's described when he says the full moon would become like blood. He describes a meteor shower when he describes the the stars fall to the earth as a fig sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. These are ordinary things, right? These are natural occurrences. These are things anyone would be familiar with. But if you read those naturally occurring phenomena in the context of verses 12 through 14, you recognize it's not just the natural that's going on on the day of the Lord. There's more to it. These occurrences are heightened and stretched by their appearance together and by the fact that John describes something as abstract as the sky vanishing like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island being removed from its place. Those things aren't natural. The sky rolling like a scroll isn't natural. Mountains and islands being, being cast off of their foundations, those, those are not natural occurrences, things that we see all of the time. There's something otherworldly going on here. This is not just any act of God. This is the act of God. It is the long-awaited day of the Lord when the Lord will consummate human history and cause His saints to be vindicated and His foes to be vanquished. I've told you many times before about George Eldon Ladd, my, one of my favorite theologians. Ladd is helpful here. Here's what he writes about this. He says there's a profound theology underlying the language of cosmic catastrophe at the end of the age. It illustrates the transcendence of God and the dependence of His creation upon its Creator. The language of cosmic catastrophe at the end of the age when God finally visits His creation in the day of the Lord is the Bible's picturesque way of describing the divine judgment falling on the world. And then Ladd says this, the language is semi-poetic. It is symbolic language which can hardly be taken with stark literalness. However, the language is not merely poetical or merely symbolic of spiritual realities, but describes a real cosmic catastrophe whose actual character we cannot conceive. 
Out of the ruins of judgment will emerge a new redeemed order which John calls new heavens and a new earth. In other words, Ladd says, and I totally agree with this, that that there's going to accompany the dreadful day of the Lord a real earth-shaking phenomena in the heavens. And it will be such that no one can ignore this sort of disaster. And yet, it will not be merely described in natural terms because it will be unlike anything the world has ever seen in both its intensity and its immensity. The second part of the breaking of the sixth seal in verses 15 to 17 describes the human response to this day of reckoning. John says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? So I want to tell you three things that will mark the day of the Lord for those who are here outside of Christ. Number one, the great day of the Lord will bring about a great equalization. The great day of the Lord will bring about a great equalization. On that day, those who are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ will find that their standing in life doesn't matter anymore. On that day when the wrath of the Lamb comes, when the outpouring of judgment from God Almighty on the face of the earth comes, they will realize that everyone is in the same setting. John says the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich and the powerful, but then he says everyone, slave and free, hid themselves. On that day when the great day of the Lord comes and the wrath of God begins to be poured out upon the earth, everyone will find themselves on the same footing. You and I have already recognized that there's no real difference between any of us. You and I have already come to the realization that everyone is on equal footing at the cross of Christ, but the world around us is still caught in the warfare of class, of political might, of militaristic power, of financial standing, and the world around us still considers that these divisions actually have importance in light of eternity. But on the dreadful day of the Lamb, they will realize that they are all equal under the wrath of God. The great day of the Lord will bring about a great equalization. Number two, The great day of the Lord will bring about a great terrorization. A great terrorization. John says everyone hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb.
it will be a day of terror for the world. You, you and I, we all remember moments in our lives when terror has struck. Today's December 7th. December 7th, 1941, terror struck the United States of America at Pearl Harbor. A sleeping giant awoke that day as we realized that we were not protected from the fury of evil in this world. We remember September the 11th, 2001, a day when once again great terror struck our nation and we were forced to reckon that evil, unmitigated, vile evil, could come even to our shores. On the great day of the Lamb, when the wrath of God begins to be poured out upon those who have opposed His name, terror unlike anything the world has ever seen will strike and consume mankind. And those who have been made equal under the wrath of God, will find themselves looking for cover under the terror of His wrath. It will be like the old spiritual says, I went to the rock to hide my face, and the rock cried out, No hiding place. There will be no cover on that day, but sheer terror the great day of the Lord will bring about a great equalization, a great terrorization, and then number three, it will bring about a great realization. And the great realization of that day will come as terror settles in the hearts of those who have opposed God and the Lamb, and they come to see for the first time that the gospel was really real, and that they've refused it. It says at the end of verse 17 that as the kings of earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone, the slave and free, as they're crying out for cover to be hidden from the wrath of the Lamb, that they say for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? See, on that day when the wrath of God begins to be poured out upon the earth, those who have not hidden themselves in Christ will find that there's nowhere to hide. And they will be looking for a way to endure, to stand up beneath God's righteous frown. And they'll find that there's no way to endure. That day will come. It really will happen. We don't have to agree on all the details of the revelation to understand 
that one day God will vindicate all of his saints and he will vanquish all of his foes. And that every person who has opposed God will face his wrath. And when they face his wrath, they will do so without cover and without protection. And there will be no hope for them on that day. And you and I, we do not rejoice in that. Except to rejoice in the conquering of our king. But we do grieve, rightly, that there are people we love who are far from God and who have no hope of His covering and who've rejected the offer of His forgiveness and who've trusted in other things that will fail them when the hour comes. And the wrath of God is poured out. And so we must, brothers and sisters, we must pray. We must pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit to happen in the hearts of those who do not believe. And we must pray against the work of the evil one who, according to 2 Corinthians 4, blinds the minds of those who do not believe. And we must pray. We must pray for effective witness that as we share the hope of the gospel, even this Advent season, that it would take root in the hearts of unbelievers and that they would come to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. John says on that day they will be left realizing that the day of God's wrath has come. And knowing that they can't stand. And so who can stand on that day? Chapter 7 will tell us that those who can stand on the day of the wrath of the Lamb are those who are numbered among his people by faith in his name. The only way, the only way to not be consumed by his judgment and crushed beneath his feet is to be covered by his righteousness, by faith. Father, we pray. We pray that your son, Jesus Christ, sees in us a faithful witness that like those saints who are beneath the altar of God, we would be those who have been true to the word of God and borne a faithful witness of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that even as we know the covering of Jesus by faith in his name, we pray that you would make us mindful of those who are not covered and who have no such security and who are sure to face the dreadful day of the Lord without hope. May their lostness pierce our hearts and may we, may we become insistent upon sharing the hope of the gospel. And may we be found faithful 
until the day that you call us home or come for us. We pray it in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.